If you've been uh, at Good News for at least a couple weeks this fall, uh, what we're doing is we're going through a series looking at a variety of prayers all throughout the Bible. And uh, the prayers have been diverse, but I think the prayers have been good in terms of uh, instructing us how we can pray. We have somebody like Abraham who prayed for the city of Sodom. We have somebody like Moses who prayed to see God's glory. We have somebody like Hannah who prayed for a child. We have somebody like David who prayed a prayer of repentance. Last week we saw somebody like King Hezekiah who prayed for victory when the Assyrian army was coming uh, close to Judah and Jerusalem. Now, the, I think the nice thing about going through these prayers is, you know, it's, it's allowed us to actually kind of go through the entire history of the Bible um, and the different aspects of history in the Bible, uh, at least the history of Israel, and so we can see the different kinds of prayers that were lifted up during different periods of biblical history. And today is actually going to be the last prayer that we look at from the Old Testament, and it comes from a period in biblical history known as the post-exilic period. This is the period after the people of God were exiled from their home. Uh, they were overtaken by foreign powers, foreign nations, foreign kingdoms, and uh, they have basically been decimated. And so this is a prayer that takes place when the people of God are very weak. And what do you do when you are very weak, when you feel destroyed both physically but also spiritually, where you have no more temple, where you have no more sense of identity in terms of who you are as a people, what do you pray for? You pray for renewal, right? And so today we're going to look at this prayer and we're going to call it a prayer for renewal. Now I've been saying that uh, sometimes the way God teaches us how to pray and sometimes the way God grows us in prayer is actually going to be through some kind of hardship or some kind of struggle where we uh, feel so helpless and we feel so weak that there is no other recourse except to come to God in prayer and to basically pray a simple prayer that says, help, God, I need help, help me. But, you know, there is another way in which God can grow us in prayer, I think, and God can grow us in prayer when we feel called to do a task that may seem impossible to us to do. If you are somebody who've wanted to see spiritual renewal, maybe in your families maybe in yourself, maybe in New York City, maybe in the different industries or the different spheres in New York City, you might think to yourself, well, that just seems like an impossible thing to do. Who am I? What can I actually do to facilitate something like that? And, you know, when I talk to different pastors in New York uh, and these different pastors who've either been planting churches or a lot of pastors, you know, have uh, churches that are smaller, uh, you know, like Good News Here, and they're, they're pouring themselves into their churches, into their people, into ministry, and they want people to get excited about the gospel, and they want people to pray together and study the Bible together and uh, share the gospel and serve the city and the people of New York together. But what happens is sometimes they get discouraged because there's not that much to show for their effort. There's not much fruit in the work that they are doing. And they begin to question things. They begin to doubt themselves. They begin to say, is this really what God is calling me to do? Now, sometimes we think we can probably do more than we can actually do. And therefore, our expectations of what we're able to do increase. And when our expectations are up here and we're actually not to, able to meet those expectations, what happens is we start to feel like failures uh, because we don't meet those expectations and we start to question ourselves. But I think as you grow and as you mature as a person and as you grow and mature spiritually, uh, one of the things that happens is you begin to understand more and more that there are certain things that only God can do and that we are limited people. And the sooner we realize that, the greater uh, there's a sense of spiritual maturity within us. 
And therefore, at that point, the most important thing you realize you can do is basically to pray and pray that God would help, pray that God would help in the work of renewal. Nehemiah's prayer here is all about that. Uh, I had a friend, and, uh, you know, growing up, he was, he was raised in the United States, but uh, his parents were Puerto Rican, and therefore he identified, well, he identified both as an American, but he also strongly identified as a Puerto Rican because uh, that was part of his heritage. And he would go to Puerto Rico every summer because he had extended family that lived there. He would visit his grandparents every summer, you know, go to the beaches. Puerto Rico had, you know, very nice weather. And amongst at least his friends, it was very clear to us that he proudly viewed himself as a Puerto Rican, as part of his identity. Uh, last year, if you remember, there was this uh, big hurricane that hit Puerto Rico, which uh, they're still recovering from and rebuilding from. And when that hurricane hit, you know, he's really affected by it. And so uh, he said, you know, that's basically my people, and I need to do whatever I can to help out in the recovery efforts because, again, that is my people that have been devastated by this hurricane. Now, perhaps some of you who were born in the States, but maybe your parents are from another country, whether it be South Korea, whether it be Taiwan, whether it be Singapore, whether it be any other country that you may draw your identity from, you can kind of relate to that a little bit. <clears throat> and that is a little bit about how Nehemiah felt here when he hears the news about Jerusalem, about the exiles in Jerusalem. You see, Nehemiah, he is an Israelite, but he is not living in Jerusalem. The passage tells us, actually, that he was a cupbearer of the king, which is an important position in the government, in the Persian government, because his job essentially was to eat, <laughs> right? He would eat the food of the king, and he would make sure that that food wasn't poisoned, and if that food was good to go, then the king would then eat his meal so that he wouldn't die. That's his job. That's Nehemiah's job as a, a cupbearer to the king. It says here he is living in Susa, and Susa is one of the royal cities under the uh, Persian Empire, under King Artaxerxes, and you got this guy named Hanani. He visits Nehemiah, and Nehemiah says, how are the Jews who had survived the exile back in Jerusalem, how are my people doing? And Hanani says this in verse 3, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so what is the book of Nehemiah about? The book of Nehemiah is basically about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. In the ancient wall world, walls were important structures. Uh, they served to protect cities from any kind of attackers. They protected cities even from just animals coming in. Uh, when a wall is broken, what happens is the city is made to feel very weak and very vulnerable. It would be like living in a house without any kind of doors, uh, where anybody can walk in, where any squirrel or deer or bear can just walk in and, uh, you know, take your food and maybe even attack you. Uh, walls also had symbolic value in the ancient world. Uh, I was recently watching uh, a documentary series on Netflix. I think it was put on by CNN, and, and they have these documentaries on certain decades. Uh, I saw the, the series on the 90s, and as a product of the 90s, it was one of the greatest series. If you're uh, my age, I encourage you to watch it. You have a lot of nostalgia about the 90s. But I also saw the, the documentary series on the 80s, and you know what happened in the 80s was there was a Cold War between uh, you know, the U.S. and the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, ideologically, there was a Cold War with communism. And uh, in 1989, uh, the Berlin Wall 
fell down and it was a it was big news because it was very symbolic uh, i was watching this documentary and basically the berlin wall was was a structure that physically divided eastern europe from western europe but again there was symbolic meaning in terms of that division ronald reagan he would go there and he would famously say in this speech mr gorbachev tear down this wall and when the berlin wall fell and I never saw footage of this before, but in the documentary series, you see what happens as people are kind of testing and seeing, hey, can we go walk through the wall? When the Berlin Wall fell and people started to cross the border, uh, it was charged with symbolic meaning. And you have all these Germans and they start to dance and they're rejoicing. And uh, you know, when people talk about globalization, what do they always point to in terms of the start of it? It's the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. This is what, 2018? <clears throat> because we're in 2018, I know uh, this is the age of right, Donald Trump presidency, and so I should probably say something about this because uh, I would think when you think about building walls, people will probably think about what Trump says in terms of build a wall and it's tied to immigration policy and a particular political party. Uh, but I would say the context is very different, and we shouldn't interpret building a wall of Jerusalem uh, through a political lens of 2018 because the circumstances were very different. Uh, for example, Proverbs 25:28 says this, like a city without walls is a man without self-control. And basically the analogy there is somebody who lacks self-control is vulnerable to all kind of temptation and all kind of spiritual attack. And therefore you don't take a gambling addict to a casino in Las Vegas because that person who lacks self-control with gambling wouldn't have any kind of protection. And that's how people saw walls built around cities in the ancient world. Walls protected the city, gave it security, gave it its security from animals, robbers, foreign army, armies that may want to destroy it. And you have to also consider this, Jerusalem actually was attacked. Jerusalem actually was destroyed. <laughs> and so the reality of an attack was a recent memory to them. Therefore, rebuilding the wall doesn't carry the same kind of symbolic meaning uh, as 2018 here in the U.S. along the border of U.S. and Mexico, but rather it is probably more similar to uh, like certain cities in Syria building a wall around their cities in order to protect themselves from suicide bombers. That's why it's important to rebuild these walls in Jerusalem. Not only does it serve a practical purpose of security, but for the people of Israel, it symbolizes renewal for their inhabitants. So Nehemiah, he hears the news and the fate of the exiles and his heart is very grieved because verse 4 says he wept and he mourned for days. Not only that, he fasts and he prays before the God of heaven. Now if you don't know anything about Nehemiah, you should know this. Nehemiah is a very capable person. He's a very good leader. Uh, what we're going to see in the book of Nehemiah, he's very strategic. He's got strong character. He's able to persevere and overcome all these obstacles that come in his way. Nehemiah is the kind of person that you want in charge of a project like this. And for such a person who is so gifted and talented in leadership gifts, his in initial reaction is not to say, well, all right, I hear this problem. Here's what I'm going to do to fix it. His first response, his first action is to pray. And guess what? He doesn't just pray for the day. He doesn't just hear the news from Hanani and say, oh, let me pray. All right, let's go do something. But you know, he actually waits and prays for four months. For four months. 
right? We know that because there's some words up there probably that we are not familiar with, but it's the month of Kislev. And in the beginning of chapter 2, it says it was a month of Nisan when he makes this request to his boss, to King Artaxerxes, to have some time off to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. That means that's a four-month gap. He probably spent a good four months waiting, contemplating, praying before he even takes one step towards taking action in terms of rebuilding this wall. Now, we don't necessarily know what Nehemiah prayed during all four of those months, but I think we have an idea based on the prayer in this text. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to spend the rest of our time just looking at this prayer because it shows how one might pray or how one ought to pray when looking for some kind of spiritual renewal. Now, the first thing here, Nehemiah's prayer, it includes a confession of sin. Okay? Now, it's a little bit different than David's prayer of repentance because, and we looked at that a couple weeks ago, because David's prayer was uh, pretty much uh, individual because he did something egregious and wrong. Um, Nehemiah's prayer is more collective or corporate or communal. If you look at verses 6 to 7, it says this, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of who? The people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah is not simply confessing his personal and individual sin before God, but he is confessing sin on behalf of his people. He's not only confessing the sins of his own house, but he's taking responsibility for his ancestors as well, and he's confessing sin from his father's house. He uses the first-person plural pronoun, we. We have acted very corruptly against you. Now, why does he do that? The reason he does that is because he knows the reason why they ended up in exile in the first place. God's people are in this position not because other foreign powers were better uh, in terms of military strategy, not because foreign powers had all the resources, uh, not because the people of Israel uh, made a mistake in terms of fighting against the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They are in this mess because they failed to obey God's word. Plug for Bible study. First and Second Kings makes that very clear, right? That's how it interprets it. That's the story it's telling us. How did Israel end up in exile? They didn't obey God's word. Now, Israel and Judah, uh, the divided kingdom, they both turned away from God's word. They worshiped foreign idols. Their hearts turned away. They essentially committed spiritual authority. And when that happens, the first steps towards reconciliation is to do what the prophets said over and over and over. Turn from your evil ways, turn to the Lord, repent, and he will make this dry and barren wilderness into a lush garden once again. But here, again, I want to focus a little bit on the corporate aspect of this confession. Uh, Nehemiah says we. Why does he say we? Uh, he wasn't there when all this happened. Uh, he wasn't there when his forefathers disobeyed God's word. Uh, he didn't personally allow uh, foreign worship to enter into uh, Jerusalem. Why is he saying we? I think this uh, is a very teachable moment and gives us a very important perspective of the Bible, which is this. There is a corporate aspect to faith. Uh, some of you know that I am in school again, and 
I, I have a 40-page paper due uh, this week that I got to get working on, and I only have two pages done, so it's going to be a busy week for me. Um, but I took a really fascinating class, and it was a class basically looking at race in America and, you know, especially in the church, race issues in the church and racism. And I, one of the books I had to read for my class is a book called Divided by Faith, and it was a really interesting book because what it did was it was trying to explain why uh, white, there's such a stark, uh, you know, I know the race issue, uh, if you're Asian American, you're like, people only talk about white-black issues. Well, that's a book like this. It's only talking about white-black issues. But it was trying to show why there's such a great disconnect between white evangelicals and black evangelicals in terms of even talking about race. Why is there so much misinterpretation and miscommunication? Why can't uh, both groups even talk about it in the same way? And the conclusion of this book is basically this. White evangelicals tend to think and look at racism through a, pr a prism of personal sin, and they primarily look at racism individualistically. So they would say things like this. Uh, I don't have a problem with racism because I've never said anything harmful to uh, a person, a non-white person, or I would welcome anybody to come to my church. But a black evangelical would say, no, you do have a problem with racism because you are born into a racist system that you may intentionally or unintentionally continue to perpetuate. And so you have one group that looks at the sin of racism individualistically, while another group looks at the sin of racism corporately. And basically, it has caused a lot of miscommunication. Well, you know, a few years ago, there's a uh, historically white Presbyterian denomination. Uh, and they, they actually debated as a denomination uh, do we, should we repent as a denomination for uh, the racism of our denomination in the past? And <clears throat> in this debate, you would say, well, yeah, of course, maybe a New Yorker would say, of course you would repent of that. But, you know, some people are like, well, uh, why, are we, why, why do we uh, have to repent or why should we repent uh, when we weren't even there? Uh, some of us weren't even born yet during the age of or era of segregation. And other people would say, well, this is a spiritual black eye on our denomination, and even though we weren't individually responsible, there's still a corporate necessity to repent on behalf of not only the body, but even our forefathers who committed this sin. And so they took a vote. Majority said, denomination, yes, we need to repent for past racism, and they repented. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, that, that's such a weird thing. You've got to take a vote to repent. But, you know, that's how it works in big institutions where you're dealing with thousands of pastors and churches and ministries. There is a corporate aspect of sin, and I think individualistic cultures tend to miss that. But you actually do see it everywhere in the Bible. Nehemiah, he is praying a corporate confession of sin because he knows that he has to identify with the disobedience and the sin of his forefathers. They're all bound together in a common faith under a common covenant. Now, by the way, I should also say this. When there are movements of revival uh, in history, almost always you, you actually see a dynamic movement of repentance that accompany it. And it's, you know, it's more than, I guess, the ordinary, usual kind of repentance of saying, you know, forgive me for my sin. But it's actually a kind of repentance that goes beyond individual confession and uh, it's a confession that says, you know, we as a church, we have failed God. We as a church, as the people of God, we have sinned against you. We have forgotten your word. We have strayed from your holiness. We have sought the things of the world more than you. We have been corrupted by power and by money and by sex. We have divided the church rather than trying to unite it. We have done what is right in our own eyes rather than seeking to follow your word and your will. 
have mercy on the church because we haven't been who we were meant to be. And you see, those kinds of prayers are super important because what they do is they prepare the spiritual soil to bear good fruit. And whether or not these kinds of prayers apply to you as an individual, maybe you didn't partake in these things, is not the point here. But if we belong to the people of God, there is a sense in which we share in the responsibility of the corporate nature of sin. And that's one of the reasons why this prayer is so important. Because if God is going to renew his people through the rebuilding of not only the temple, but the temple walls, well, guess what? His people have to confess their sins, their corporate sins. The second thing we see in this prayer is this. Nehemiah prays in verse 8 that God would remember his word and the promise he made to Moses. So he says this, if you are, this is what God says, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. This is from Deuteronomy. And Nehemiah is basically saying to God, you made a promise to your servant Moses in your word in the book of Deuteronomy. And since you are faithful, I know you will keep those promises. And I expect you to be true to those promises. I know if your people are spiritually right with you and following you, then your people will be blessed. And I know if your people repent and turn away from their evil ways and turn to you again, you are going to gather the scattered people together and you will dwell with your people once again because you're a forgiving God. You're gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. Now, if you think about it, Nehemiah is coming to God with what? Nothing except God's own promises. Nehemiah is coming to God with nothing to stand on except God's own word. Now what we see is that Nehemiah, he understood the problem beneath the problem. He looked at things through a spiritual lens, which is to say he looked at things from God's perspective and from the perspective of God's word. You see, if you were to look at the problem just through a naturalistic lens, what would you see? you'd see, well, there's three potential issues in terms of rebuilding this wall. First, I got a job, and my boss is King Artaxerxes, and he has to give me permission to leave and go to Jerusalem and spend a period of time, take a leave of absence, and work on building this wall in Jerusalem. That's the first issue. Second, you know, people have been exiled, and now they're living in all these different places, and we're going to need some help to rebuild this wall. If people are going to come and rebuild this wall, you know what that's going to mean? They're going to have to leave the lives that they've built in these other cities and in these other places and voluntarily, on their own dime, return to Jerusalem and try to rebuild these walls. That's a really big sacrifice to make, right? Third issue, someone's got to pay for this. Who's going to finance this project about rebuilding the walls? Jerusalem has been decimated. The people are weak. They're poor. They're in poverty. They have no money. These are real problems in terms of getting this project done, right? And it needs some solutions. But here's the thing. There is a problem beneath all of these problems, and that problem is a spiritual problem. And the spiritual problem is this. The people have strayed from being faithful to God's covenant. That's the reason they were scattered. That's the reason they were defeated. That's what God said would happen if they disobeyed God's word. And therefore, he looks to a solution beneath the solution. 
Again, through a naturalistic lens, he could say, well, you know what I have to do? I got to do some fundraising. I got to do some recruiting. Uh, I got to hire uh, some people. I got to deal with this king. I got to choose my words carefully, try to maybe negotiate some time off, some P PTO maybe. But he knows that's not the ultimate solution because that's not the ultimate problem. The solution required is a spiritual solution. And that spiritual solution requires one to do this, to remember God's promise that if his people return to him and keep his commandments, he will gather them and make his name dwell there. The spiritual solution is for his people to repent, to return to him, and to walk in his ways again. If we care, if any of us care about any kind of spiritual renewal, maybe within our families, within our cities, within our church, within other churches of New York City, it's really important to gather together to pray and to even repent if we want to see spiritual renewal. Because you see, the spiritual climate of the soil has to change. Well, what do we see as the problems of New York? Uh, everybody's too busy, right? Oh, uh, the problem is, you know, everybody uh, is too greedy. Mm, the problem is, you know, uh, Christians just uh, aren't serious about their faith anymore. The problem is consumerism. Right? We have all these things that we look at in terms of uh, maybe why churches struggle, but we have to see, again, the problem beneath the problem. And therefore, we need to be a people of prayer. Now, here's a, here's a problem with maybe movements of spiritual renewal. The problem is they don't last. They don't really last. You know, if you're looking for a happy ending, you won't find it in the book of Nehemiah. By the end of the book, people are disobeying God's word again. The temple walls have been built, but people are doing whatever they want to do again. They're living uh, according to their own desires. They've allowed idol worship to enter in again. And Nehemiah returns, and he sees the state that Jerusalem is in, and he, he literally has to beat people up. <laughs> he literally pulls out people's hair. Even movements of revival don't last. You know, there has been a bunch of revivals even here in the U.S. We had a great awakening, and there was a great revival during the Great Awakening. Even, I think, during the 60s and 70s, there was a great revival here. Uh, we went to Bulgaria this past summer. In Bulgaria, there was a great revival in Bulgaria after the fall of the Berlin Wall in the early 90s. China underwent great spiritual transformation and now probably has one of the largest Christian populations in the world. You know, before Korea was divided between North and South, there was a re revival in Pyongyang in the early 1900s, and that is probably why so many Koreans became believers, uh, even individually. Some of you have experienced spiritual renewal only to go back to your old habits only a few months later, right? We, we wish re re renewal and revival and those kind of things would last, but actually they usually don't last, and they're usually not strong enough to keep going. But you see, that's why we need the gospel, friends. That's why we need to remember the gospel. And that's why we need to know this is exactly why Jesus came. Jesus came not to bring a temporary movement of renewal, but he came to make all things new. Everything new. Christianity, you know, if you were going to summarize it, Christianity is about newness, making everything new. There's a new birth, new life new covenant, new kingdom, new song, new Jerusalem, new creation, 
new temple. The gospel, yes, it is about individual salvation, but it's also about cosmic renewal. Renewal happens because Jesus was the better Nehemiah. Renewal happens because Jesus became an exile on the cross so that we would no longer be exiles to God. Jesus came and died on a cross so that we would be invited, so that we would be made new, so that we would be brought into the heavenly temple, the new temple where God dwells. Jesus is the better Nehemiah who would also be raised from the dead. And the power of his resurrection would bring in a new age of the kingdom of God. And you know what that means for us, friends? We live in an age where the church has greater power for renewal than even Nehemiah had in those times. Why? Because we have the power of the resurrection through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We live in an age where God wants to bring renewal to this entire world. We live in an age where God is actually doing that. Maybe it doesn't feel like it here in New York, but God is actually doing that all over the world. And if that is the case, then what should we as a church be doing? Oh, we should probably be doing a lot of things, but I think foundationally, we should be praying. We should be praying together. We should probably be repenting, especially the church in in the U.S. Uh, We should be uh, seeking to obey God and following his will. Why? So that we would be a temple that is fit for the presence of God, that we would be a dwelling place fit for him. Renewal, making all things new, is ultimately God's trajectory. It is his will. It is what he will accomplish by way of the resurrection and the new heaven and the new earth. And because that is his trajectory, we can actually be confident and know for sure that this is something that God wants. This is something that God wants. He wants to make all things new. He wants death and sin to be vanquished. He wants his people to be filled with joy and peace and a security that cannot be taken away. Well, what's our problem? Uh, Individually, you know, maybe it's different. Maybe collectively, There are some things that we need to repent for. Uh, Maybe there's some sin. Maybe we have uh, not taken God's word seriously. Uh, We look at it more as a perspective or an opinion that we'll follow uh, if we agree with it. Um, Maybe we, uh, we think, oh, let me get what I want first, and then I'll do what God wants. I don't know, right? Maybe it's those things. But I tell you this, the problem the problem with our church is not, you know, everybody's too busy, people are having kids, people are busy at work. That's not the problem, friends. <laughs> the problem is spiritual. It's spiritual. And therefore, the solution is spiritual as well. Prayer and worship. Let's pray together.